Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. I've spent some time trafficking in the world of uh, business ideas and business literature. I was reflecting, I'm not sure there's been a more influential book uh, written about entrepreneurship in the last 10 years, and I'm not exaggerating. I was indexing the books that have been written, the frameworks that have come out. It's probably had more influence on certainly the way we think about startups in Silicon Valley than anything else that I can think of in recent memory. As a result, we're really uh, honored to have Eric Reese as an LP of ours, as a friend of the firm, and then uh, this afternoon for a masterclass with all of us. The format is going to be, I'm going to ask Eric a set of questions, we'll have a little bit of a conversation, and then we'll have lots of time for questions and discussion. So hopefully many of you can be able to ask a question or respond to something, push back, and we can have a lot of, of a dialogue and back and forth. At the end, we'll talk a little bit about Eric's new company, which which I'm also an investor in before the village, the creation of village. It's long, all in the family. Long, long-term long <laughs> stock exchange. Uh, we'll talk about how that's relevant to all of our companies too. Uh, so Eric, let's start with the basics. Describe the lean startup methodology. Well, if I could do it in a tweet, I wouldn't have had to write the whole damn book. So... You know, I, I've, I've tried over the years to get better at summarizing. And I think because we're, you know, in a room full of entrepreneurs, I feel like we can talk about it in a slightly different way than the more like abstract way people talk about it on the outside. Because in my experience, you have this incredible vision in your mind of what you're going to accomplish when your startup succeeds. And we've all seen that in the movies. Right? In the movies, they spend a lot of time on the post product market fit, post cover of magazines stage of startup life. Very little time on the stage that you're all in right now where you actually have to do work and make things happen. And then some time on the like having the good idea stage, which is not, you know, which is very telegenic, but it's like very short in the, in the life of a company, right? And my experience was that in order to sustain energy in that vision over time, you have to deal with the fact that in the fantasy of what your startup is going to be, you never have to make any trade-offs. Everything works. The product is like infinitely fast and infinitely cheap and all customer segments love it and regulators love it and the press loves it and your employees love it. It's just like everything's, you know what I'm talking about? Everyone have this fantasy from time to time? We, uh, we don't have that fantasy. Yeah, right. Yeah, y'all, it, 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 and listen, and I've, I have screwed this up multiple times and each time I have a new idea. And in fact, even time when I meet a new entrepreneur for the first time, I live in the fantasy with them. I love it. I mean, I, it makes me a terrible investor. That's why I have Ben do it for me. I'm terrible because I just, I love, like, yes, that could totally work. I, half of your pitch, I was like, oh yeah, I'm already sold that it's going to work. I don't even know what it is except three cents. I'm already, it's like, I have that, that's my brain works that way as many of yours does too. In the academic literature, they call it, I think it's called the ability to ignore inconvenient facts. Statistically correlated with becoming an entrepreneur and inversely correlated with being successful at running a company, unfortunately. So you have to always find that knife set. So, in the real world, you, you go to try to do anything with your startup. I mean, the first time you talk to anybody about it or you do whatever you do, you're conducting an experiment, whether you admit it or not. And then the experiment is always ambiguous in its results. And it's very easy to, to let each of those experiments and each of the new, all the new facts you uncover force you away from your vision. This is, this was my experience with being an entrepreneur. It's like so hard to sustain the energy and drive required to get to the finish line. And it's so easy to give up. Like, I, I feel like we're biologically wired as you get more and more information to like want to give up more and more often because like enthusiasm and morale 
and political capital and economic, nothing is ever quite so high as at the beginning. It's like always, always downhill from there. And, you know, sorry, I don't, you all know that, right? So and it's rough. And every time something good happens, it turns out to secretly have been something bad. And every time something bad happens and you realize later it was actually the best thing that ever happened. And you just like, it's just this crazy roller coaster. You have no idea what's going on. It's like, how do you sustain any kind of vision through that process personally? But then how do you get a team to all go on that journey with you when it's totally crazy? And just like, it's, it's extremely difficult. And in my early parts of my career, I just did it badly. And I had all this failure. And I did all these best practices that I'd learned from, you know, other famous entrepreneurs or from business books or from MBAs or whatever. And I just kept feeling like the traditional way we build a company doesn't make any sense at all to especially an early stage startup. And I was really on this like quest to try to understand why. And to make a really long story short, I developed this framework where if we accept really deeply, profoundly accept that what makes you an entrepreneur is that you don't know what's going to happen in the future. Like that ultimately, like being in that soil of extreme uncertainty, that's what, that's what being a startup is all about. It means you can't use forecasting and planning and the kind of 20th century management tools to do anything. Like they're just, they're not bad tools. They just don't work if you can't make a forecast because you have no idea what you're talking about. And the spreadsheet that you use to raise money, you made 11 o'clock last night when you have a pitch this morning based on what you thought the investor was hoping the numbers would look like. And right, like, and traditional management, 20th century management theory would say, oh, you've made a forecast. Let's use the forecast as a tool of accountability. Anyone ever had this happen to them? The first time I ever made a five-year forecast, month by month, very detailed, a lot of significant digits in my forecast. Otherwise, it's not believable. First time I had an, an investor remember that spreadsheet later after the money was in my bank account and be like, hey, it's six months later. According to your spreadsheet, you would have, you know, X.5, a number of customers. I'm so shocked that they thought that was a good idea. I was like, wait, wait, you believe that? You thought I was telling you the truth about I have the ability to predict the future? Like, I thought they were crazy. But of course, I'm the crazy one. In regular life, in regular jobs, like, this is the thing. If you've been in a system for long enough, you forget this. In regular work, in regular companies, in regular jobs, in regular organizations, people can predict the future very, very accurately. And they use their ability to hit the forecast as the primary tool of accountability in all of management and uh, at the stock market too, as we'll get to, right? Miss the forecast, oh, well, you're in trouble. And like, you know, you miss by a penny a share on Wall Street and you're in trouble. Well, we as entrepreneurs, we tend to miss our accountability forecast by like two, three, four orders of magnitude. But then we're like, but don't worry, I learned so much. You should give me more money. Like it just, it's important to just start with like in regular corporate life, that not, it gets you like not only fired, but like, Double fired, like triple, like, I don't know what, I don't know what it is, the penalty beyond being fired you can get. Like, you imagine you have a sales target, quarterly target, and you're like, I missed by three orders of magnitude, but I got learning to spare. You can't like, oh, I'm going to put the learning in the annual report and the shareholders will love it. I'm going to return learning to my limited partners. Like, don't you be trying that, right? Like, it's ridiculous. It's like people go crazy. And yet that's how we talk about things in entrepreneurship, as if learning was a tangible quality, like it had any kind of value whatsoever. And everything we do in the entrepreneurial world, my experience was, it sounds exactly the same as the like worst, most incompetent excuse makers in regular management, right? Like the guy who's like, I missed my accountability target, but boss, I sure learned a great lesson, like is definitely on the road of being fired. But actually, if you if you believe in the hockey stick shaped growth pattern, there's tons of incredibly valuable learning that happened during the flat part of the hockey stick, right? No, no. So Lean Startup was an attempt to answer the question of if you're in an entrepreneurial situation, how do you actually know if you're making progress towards that vision or not? Which 
it was the question I used to ask people as an entrepreneur so that they would help me. Like, I must have, I was always the technical co-founder. So I was a CTO. You know, I'm a, I, if you have a picture of like the stereotypical Silicon Valley founder who was like in their parents' basement programming computers as a child instead of going outside. Hi. That's me. I, I was, I'm the complete stereotype. So that, I didn't expect to be an entrepreneur. I never wanted to be a CEO. I didn't know anything about business. I love technology first and foremost. But because my startups didn't work like it says in the movies, we kept building software that nobody would use. And then I was always like, that was, that really bothered me. And it's actually interesting. Like, I know other technologists that that doesn't really bother that much because like they enjoyed building the technology for its own sake. And I thought that was me too. I, I thought I loved the technology, but I eventually realized that to me, technology was a means to an end to have an impact on the world. And if we built amazing technology that was beautifully well factored, if I do say so myself, but nobody used it and it had really good test coverage and you know, the documentation was just the right amount, not too much, but not too little. And also it's like none of that stuff actually matters if nobody used it. In fact, I once worked on a system, I told the story a little bit in the book, that was incredibly highly scalable. But it never had any scalability problems <laughs> because we never had any customers. <laughs> but goddamn, we could have had so many customers. If the customers had liked it, boy, boy, did we do our work. And kids today, I mean, the young entrepreneurs I meet today can't believe that this is how entrepreneurship was ever done, right? Because to them, lean startup is so obvious. The idea that somebody had to write a book about it is laughable. Like, they can't believe. But like, I'm not that old. <laughs> You know, the book didn't come out in the 80s. It's not ancient history. Like, the book came out in 2011. So, like, when I first moved to Silicon Valley in 2001, and I, you know, I was at a startup that had, you know, A triple plus super venture funding and, you know, had the five-year plan and was in stealth R&D. It was a heyday of stealth right in the post.com bubble. Spent all this money. And I remember as, like, I'm the most junior engineer on the team, a nobody. And we had this product that, that we had been working on for years with no customer input whatsoever. We loved using it ourselves in our secret play tests. Our board, our board meetings, we would have a big thing where everyone got to use the technology and everyone had a great time. I remember being like, why don't we ship this? And like, I said that out loud once in a meeting and you know, like in the movies when like someone says the faux pas thing and every room goes silent and there's like the record scratch and the music stop and people looked at me like, did he just say that? Like, and I was like, oh, you really don't know what you're talking about. Like, I was like, like I was in trouble and I had to be like, just kidding. Never mind. I'm sure that's a bad idea for some reason that you're going to tell me later. And I never found out what the reason why I just didn't understand. But like, these were the smartest people in Silicon Valley, incredible MBAs and serial entrepreneurs and all these, and just like the conventional wisdom about what to do. Like, was really different not that long ago, and it was really bad. So, Eric, then in 2011, you set forth to try to codify a lot of what you've learned and what other people had, had learned in their yeah. years of trying to, to make products that customers actually want. Talk about how that framework came together, and then, if you can, summarize the, the two or three key tenets. Yeah, so if you believe all this preamble that I was just giving about uncertainty and all that stuff, and we're trying to get towards a vision... It's really important. If you don't have a vision, then you don't have a hypothesis and you're not doing science. I don't know what you're doing. Say that you, last part again. If you don't have a vision, yeah. then you don't have a hypothesis that you're trying to test. Yeah. So you're not doing science. Right. So I don't know what you are doing, but like science is pretty good. As, I feel like it's a track record. I feel like the thing to hear to say to, has had track record is working out pretty well and we should, we should go with it. So that was like, that was really the, the initial insight to this was just let's be scientific about the experiments that we're already naturally running as entrepreneurs. So. Rather than build the best possible product that we think will work in the future according to our business plan, let us break the business plan down into what we call leap of faith assumptions. And for each of those assumptions, let's try to think about what's an intelligent experiment we can run 
to find out if that assumption is true or false. But because this is not academic, we actually care about real-world impact and we have a runway. Let's do that in the cheapest and quickest way possible to test the assumption so that we can learn what the next thing is. So the experiments are called minimum viable products or MVP. The process of doing this continuously we call build, measure, learn. For how quickly can we go from an idea to validation of whether that idea is correct? And the action that we take if we discover that there's a problem is the pivot. So sorry about that. But it's like become ridiculous business jargon. But we didn't have that concept to talk about startups like not that long ago. And it was really annoying because you're trying to explain to people, oh, they have like really great entrepreneurs. What they do is they'll try something and then it totally doesn't work, but it kind of does work. And then they like, they figured out the parts that don't work and they make this adjustment and they stay true to the vision, but they're also super flexible. I remember reading these older books about entrepreneurship. It's like the key is to be like, re- like resolutely flexible. It's just like, I, have, as an, I found this stuff insanely frustrating. I was like, what does that mean? And how do I know if I'm doing it or not? So it's just like, let's just get some language and some simple concepts. So a pivot, a change in strategy without a change in vision. So it's not if you're A-B testing 40 colors of blue or whatever that thing is, that's not a pivot. That doesn't count. You don't get bonus points for that. If you want to do it, go nuts, but that doesn't count. And if you change the vision, like I know people who like pivot every four days, like that doesn't count either. You have to actually be consistent about trying to get somewhere. And, you know, just a very simple analogy, you get in your car and you want to drive from San Francisco to New York City. You can do that. You can program that into your GPS and be like, that's the destination I have in mind. And you're driving along. First of all, let's get clear. The GPS is just a tool. It's a robot. It doesn't know where you should go. So you're not doing entrepreneurship if you get in your car and you're like, GPS, where should I go today? Any idea for a destination? Like that doesn't count. But then, you know, you, there's a roadblock and the, you know, the freeway is closed that you were planning to go on. It's also not be like, well, didn't work. My plan didn't work. So I'm going home. Can't get to New York City. It's impossible from here. Like, no, you'd be like, hey, robot, can you help me find a different course to so get let's, there? Let's unpack what some of the leap of, you call them leap of faith yeah. assumptions. Yeah. What are examples of really good leap of faith assumptions or what some, what are some concrete case studies that you've worked on as you've advised founders where they, oh, sure. Founder had a, a vision and then they developed a set of leap of faith assumptions. So let's start with like the best leap of faith assumptions are the most obvious. Oh, the ones that are so dumb, you're kind of embarrassed to say it out loud. But actually, it's really important to say it out loud because you can't tell you how many founders skip this step. So like, I have a new idea for a startup. We should invent teleportation. Okay, that's my idea. And, and my technology is for teleportation, like you saw in Star Trek. And so like, what are the most important leap of faith assumptions? Now, if you actually ever meet us, like I meet these startups we're working on. Some of, some of the concept pitches sound like they're pretty whiz-bang, high-tech like thing where I'm going to have to get a PhD just to understand what the thing does. So like when I meet those founders, and like, you know, you tell, okay, how, how's the teleportation startup going? You know what the first update's going to be. Like, it's going to be some quantum reality thing about how we did this test in the lab and we were already doing great on the GK25 benchmark, whatever. Like, it's some mumbo jumbo technical thing, which is very important to a teleportation startup. Don't get me wrong. But is it really the most important leap of faith assumption? Well, most founders would be like, well, obviously, everyone, like, you're like who's our target market for teleportation? Well, obviously, everyone. Right. Who wouldn't want to commute? Like, who wants to commute to their office when they could teleport instead? Right. So literally every freaking human being on planet Earth, that's my total available market. It's growing every day. It's up and to the right. It's, it's just great. And so like it's like I don't even have to say it out loud. It's so obvious that people are going to want this product because that's how good it is. Now, first of all, every entrepreneur I ever meet, they think their technology is as good as teleportation. It's unbelievable. <laughs> I get this pitch all the time. And like it's kind of funny when you say it out loud because you're like, OK. There's a le- like levels of sophistication to this. 
the leap of faith assumption, the falsifiable hypothesis, if you want to go all Karl Popper on this for a second, the falsifiable hypothesis is actually very easy to test. It's a great framework for creating an experiment. It's like, well, if literally every person on planet Earth wants this product, then logically speaking, I could pick a subset of those human beings, and it will also be true that they will want your product, correct? Uh Uh-huh. Okay, so that means that the first 10 people I see on the street offered the chance to use your teleportation gizmo will all say yes. Uh Uh-huh. Like, let's go run an experiment. And they're like, well, there's no point. I already know it's true. It's like, but what could it hurt? I know you're in the reality distortion field, but what could it hurt to just double check? I'm sure you're correct. But since you're so correct, it'll be very easy to confirm that this is true. And can any of you actually imagine running this experiment in your head? Hi, I'm working on a teleportation gizmo. Would you like to be the very first person to try it? (laughs) Who wants to be first? Teleportation gizmo and no takers. And so how many leap of faith assumptions should you have at the outset of your business? You're starting a new business. How many are you and how are you testing them all in parallel or? Totally. Yeah. And and so the problem with this is the deeper we go, the more that it really becomes context specific. So like, you know, I'm a big believer in that in the old engineering maxim of garbage in, garbage out. So. Not, there's not, you know, no universal rules that apply in every single situation. And as soon as you move from these kind of broad principles to specific tactics, then it kind of depends on the situation. So I'll try to answer, but the general rule of thumb is you want to have three to five of the most important leap of faith assumptions that you're testing at any given time. But like, does that mean if you have six, you're doing it wrong? You know, is, I, and are they, are all five going to be equally important? Like in some businesses, there's just one that is really like stand out so critical. Like, well, we really have to know. I mean, the teleportation one is funny, but like, mm-hmm. yes, can we teleport an object from point A to point B is very important to know the answer to that. And also, if we could teleport, would anybody be willing to do it is also like those are two very importantly prepared assumptions. So like worst case scenario, like if you could just be like, can we build it? And does anybody want it? That would be completely fine with me. Like, honestly, that would be a huge improvement over many of the business plans that I see, even today. Even after all these years of us pounding the drum about all this, like, I still meet people who you're like, what is the evidence that you have that people actually want this thing? And, you know, and, and, you know so there's an interesting question of how yeah. much can you trust what a potential customer tells you, right? Mm. So you go off and ask yeah, them on the street, do you want this product? It's going to look not. like this. And they say, yeah, I want that product. But then they don't buy so what, yeah, it's a funny, funny story about it. It's a medical device startup that was trying to sell into China from the U.S. Really great whiz, whiz bang medical thing that they're going to sell. And they decided that the best way to find out if anybody would want it is they went and interviewed doctors in rural China hospitals where they planned to sell this thing with a translator. And they asked them, you know, I've got this idea for this device. Would you like to buy it? Do you think it's a good idea? And everyone was so polite to them. And every doctor thought it was a good idea. So they had 100% customers were excited to buy their product and they were like, my validation is done. I know it's now I can spend the next three years safely building this device. And we might, and so like that, that's key thing. So it's not an experiment unless you measure the action involved. And it's not, it has to be a financial transaction. We call it only sort of, you know, it's like as we get more detailed, there's more jargon and stuff. So you don't have well, to know all these details, jargon. but I mean, yeah, guys, we're ready for jargon. Okay. So the test of what we call the exchange of value is the customer willing to give you something that's precious to them in exchange for the thing you promised to deliver. And it doesn't have to be like, duh, if I have a product I can offer you, you can pay me money for the product. But a lot of products you don't pay for. So like Facebook, you offer your time and attention for it. And, you know, in this case, it's illegal. It's a medical device. You cannot sell a medical device even in China that has not been approved by the relevant government agency. So it would be illegal to sell it. So you can't do a sale. So in this case, ran an experiment where we asked the doctors, we went back, Ask the doctors to sign a letter on their own letterhead 
addressed to the administrator of the hospital where they worked, saying, I, so-and-so doctor, think that when this medical device is available on the market, it would be really great for us to buy. I mean, so in some ways, cost them nothing and just signing this piece of paper. But on the other hand, you're putting your name to a thing, and people care about that. Well, guess what? Of the 10 doctors who were asked to sign the letter, you'd be shocked because all my stories have the same moral of the story, the same twist ending. Zero out of 10 were willing to sign the letter. On the same 10 doctors who had just been like, that's such a great idea. So, so I the love insight it so is much. ask them to sign on a letter. To saying do a do thing, it. to take an yeah, action, take to an give action. you something. To, you know, and like some products, like this is the problem when you start to give like specific startup advice. Yeah. And you have different network leaders, different verticals. So like if you actually have them compare notes about like what's a valid experiment in your mm-hmm. vertical, they're hilariously different. Because like in some businesses, the purchase decision is like a 13-step you know, decathlon of ludicrous steps. It has to be like a technical due diligence evaluation. And then there's the mm. biz dev negotiation, the terms and conditions. And so the sales pipeline, the funnel has incredibly, con- you know, any of you in one of these businesses where just like making one sale is like a freaking amazing. Yeah, getting them to expend time is an interesting exchange of value. Like if they're really interested, they will spend regular time with you. And that's yeah, an interesting yeah, proxy for interest. And just because it's scientific doesn't mean that it always has to be precise. Because this is – just because I feel like we can kind of get into some more advanced stuff with this group. But like one of the most important concepts in statistics is signal-to-noise ratio. Everyone's familiar with this? So when we start talking about probability and you know experiments and like what's a statistically significant sample, all of us – we're conditioned to think about probability in what's called frequentist terms. Like for things like presidential polling, right, where there's like a relatively small margin of error and therefore you need a large sample because we're trying to measure relatively minute changes in people's preferences. But like – do I think your idea is catastrophically stupid or not is a high signal to noise ratio thing that we're trying to find out. So we don't really need like tons and tons and tons of samples. Like if you pitch something to someone, you can you can tell a lot by the look on their face as you're talking to them. And you're, you've, all, you've all pitched. So you know the difference between like someone who's like, can I buy that right now? Is that it? Can I, is there any way that I could get my, can you stay extra so I can come get my colleagues into to, to, like, have you ever had that pitch? Versus like, thank you for coming in. Even when you're raising money, you can tell, right? Like versus like, you know, half the partnership's still in the building. Can you hold on? Can I get them together? Versus like, you know, we'll have an associate like call you back and we're very interested. Uh, definitely want to hear more about it. Keep us posted, right? Like you've all, like we all know so the difference. Sort of, it's the sort of subjective interpretation. Of yeah. Like, like, like subjectivity is not the problem. Like it's, it's having some kind of structure for your own thinking that you can see uh, evolution over time. Because I do think this is, you know, many years ago, I read Steve Blank's book, Four Steps to Epiphany. I was just mm-hmm. telling some of my partners, I bought it on Cafe Press. Oh, yeah. The place to buy it is a self-published guide. And, 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 you know, he's one of a fellow godfather of this whole movement. This notion of customer development and getting really analytical about what you're doing and why you're doing it is really, really important. Yeah, a huge yeah, part yeah. of the Lean Startup framework. Totally, it's just totally. getting more I... sophisticated. But the funny thing is, is when you say, oh, you know the look on the face, that's rather unscientific. Like we could, of course, sometimes it's obvious. Yeah. But smart people can disagree on, oh, I, I thought she was really enthusiastic. No, I thought she was a little tentative. And this, this blend of art and, and science yeah, is yeah, really what important. this is all about. Like, yeah, if you can get someone to click on LinkedIn ads, that's awesome as data. But sometimes you're going into a meeting and just interpreting the facial expressions of somebody. And that's valuable too. And, and so balancing these two inputs to figure out, is my, yeah, is my leap of faith hypothesis valid or not is key. I mean, listen, so, the, like, listen, I still have somewhere in my, in my archives, I still have my original copy. If, if you think Four Steps Epiphany is dense and difficult to read now, you should see what it was in the <laughs> original version of it. 
I still have my like marked up with red pen thing where I like I did the initial edits on, on anyway like Steve and I worked a lot on that. On it's that great stuff. book, everyone. I mean, it's, I mean it's, it's it's it's, a, it's an absolute classic, and especially for enterprise. If you if you first of all if you're doing any form of enterprise sales, you have not read this book. You're just like shooting yourself in the foot because it's full of just like thousands of these like useful little tips and techniques and just like if you're in this situation here's exactly what to do i've used it like a million trillion times it's really great i don't know if you can get the original version or only the more polished one now i like the original one personally polished is self-published on cafe press i believe no no now i think now it's i I think you get it somewhere else now like but yeah i don't know if the one the cafe press one is still available like (laughs) still the paper will disintegrate after not that long a time i can attest but it's totally worth anyway the really tricky part is Steve made this distinction between what he called customer discovery and customer validation. And I always found that really helpful. It's like, if you already have a hypothesis, he wouldn't, he would not agree with my, I'm going to summarize it now in a way he would not 100% agree with. So I'm not speaking for Steve, go read his own book here in his own words. The way that I understand it as an engineer is that if you already have a hypothesis that you're convinced about, then you want customer validation. That is, you want to run an experiment to see if your hypothesis is correct. If you are trying to generate a hypothesis for some reason, you need customer discovery, which is a much more qualitative process of really coming to understand the customer in a profound, deep way. Now, Steve would say, if you formed a hypothesis without doing customer discovery, you're doing it wrong and you should go back and do it over again. And I would say to Steve, like, good luck convincing entrepreneurs that they didn't do whatever you're telling them to do already. So like, we have a disagreement about what the first step of the process ought to so be. So the first step could be form a hypothesis, have a vision about the future, then go. Yeah, I kind of feel not. like my experience with entrepreneurs is once you already have your hypothesis set in your mind, I can't talk you out of it anyway. You're convinced that customers already told you everything you need to know and you already talked to your mom or whoever and well, they told you it was great. And- I would say a lot of entrepreneurs are committed to a vision. I don't know if they're committed to a hypothesis per se. It depends on how right. grand the hypothesis is. Like I, if I think about the folks in this room who I've yeah. worked with and know, I feel like there's strong commitment to a vision. There's actually in the early stages, relative open-mindedness to the precise way of manifesting that vision through hypotheses, if that makes sense. That's good. I mean, I, that's I, I certainly, yep. I, I think like if I could pick the sweet spot is, is just what you're saying that you, that you have, you have a strategy in mind that you are fully committed to implementing and you understand that you might have to change it. And my human beings are just not very good at that. Cause you're basically like, I fiercely believe that this is definitely going to work. And also it might not work. And those are, that causes cognitive dissonance. And so, you know, there's some like a lot of practical steps to this. Like, I really believe you have a regularly scheduled pivot or persevere meeting. You just like, I get you to do one thing. It'll make your life so much easier. So how often should you have a pivot or persevere meeting? I kind of like every six weeks, but like some people prefer. Does anyone here have a pivot or persevere meeting as a recurring calendar uh, item? On <laughs> You're, okay. Just every just, six weeks. I mean, just, it's just do it. Listen, I mean, listen, I, my team is kind of trying to get me to move it to every eight weeks. <laughs> like some people are like things happen once a quarter. Other people do it once a month. Like don't do it every week. But, but is it pivot? Is it pivot around a specific leap of faith assumption or is it pivot? The no, business? it's just, I mean, it's just like, cause like, so let's say that you have, you make it, you get your team together and you have one of these big kickoffs for like, okay, we've got our new strategy and everybody, we're all agree that we're going to go direct to consumer. We're going to build this website. It's going to go, everything's going to go great and whatever. We have this plan. And then like two weeks later, something changes. So like someone, someone wakes up that morning and they're like, oh my God, this is not going to work. We just ran this first experiment and everyone hates it. Or like our competitor just did this random competitor thing. Or my favorite, like our investors would constantly be like, did you hear about this competitor that's doing this thing way more awesome than you? And it's like, how do you know about that? I read this great press release in TechCrunch, so it must be true. And it's just like, just right. Like, so that happens. Now everyone in the team's freaking out. Like, oh my God, maybe we made the wrong choice two weeks ago. You don't want to have that meeting every time someone freaks out about mm. something. It's a huge waste of time. I can't tell you how many hours of your life. You all have these meetings. You know what I'm talking about? Like someone wants you to, and all you just want to be like, look, there is a time and place to talk about that. 
It's already on the calendar. Can you can you wait four weeks to discuss this topic? That's great. So it's like right. the part. It's the permanent parking lot for the holy just, shit. Tech uh, oh my just god! Came out about this other company happened. doing this crazy thing. But also, yeah. yeah, we ran this experiment, and it was a complete cluster. I mean, none of our everything we thought we knew about this is completely wrong. But like, do we? And but then somebody in the team would be like, "Do you? But you really want to overread into one data point?" And you're like, "Oh, good point." Maybe I should persevere through this because it's just one data point. Well, I should probably get a second data point. But some people are like, no, this is so severe. We, and it's just like, everybody, we're going to commit to this for at least six weeks. Okay. So we're, again, we're not going to do one data point. Like if we get a data point every two weeks, then we're going to have three data points when we have them. So meeting. then we get together. So six weeks from now, we have a pivot or persevere meeting. And this is, this is actually a very deep life existential question too, in terms of life choices. Well, <laughs> pivot or persevere. We'll leave that, we'll leave that for the, the later conversation. That's, that's but, a different, that's, you gotta get a different you, guru for that. How do you know, how do you know whether to pivot or persevere? I mean, it's hard to speak in generalities here. It's so context specific, as you'd say, but yeah, are you looking yeah, no, that, for? So, so this is a really, so, so the, I can give you a formal, I'll give you a formal answer. We're here, we're here. I'll give you the complicated yeah. answer. I feel like I'm going to give you all the complicated answers I don't usually use. So anyone remember Thomas Kuhn and science, the theory of scientific paradigms? Anyone read that book? Paradigm shift. Right. Paradigm shift, right? So, like, paradigm shift is such an important concept that it's become cliche. It's kind of, you know, it's like, uh, uh, even like a million times more conventional and cliche than pivot paradigm shift. But actually, like, the original theory of a scientific paradigm was a really important, clear breakthrough idea. And it's a, it's actually a very well defined term. And it, what it means is a paradigm is a, is a way of structuring your thinking about what experiments you should do to learn more about a topic in science. And when a paradigm is working, the experiments get more productive over time. You're like, each experiment builds on the next one, and you just like, you feel like each discovery leads to a neck, and you're just like, you're making progress. And when paradigms fail, this is like, I think, just a very insightful thing about human nature. Very rarely do any scientists ever actually give up on their paradigm. It's almost unprecedented in history. What happens is, they get older, and the next generation of scientists who actually care about running productive experiments try the new paradigm because the old paradigm, the, the, you're getting diminishing returns from each experiment. So in science, we just wait for the old guard to die and then the new guard takes it over. But we don't have that kind of time. You know what I'm saying, right? So like the whole idea here is like your company shouldn't die just because the idea is wrong in some way. So the, the, the like formal technical answer is you run a series of experiments over time and you'll just realize that like even though you're making the product better every time, no one cares. You just, you, if you ever, any of you ever been in this situation, it's like brutal. Uh, I'll give you one example. I, I was, I wanted to work on this product with my bare hands for six months. And I, I remember this, like, I'll never forget this as long as I live. The first experiment we did this product was a, you know, freemium business. And all that mattered was what percentage of customers who tried the pro- trial paid you money for the premium version. And it was 1%. It's always 1%. <laughs> so it was 1%. And then for six months, I, with my bare hands, made this product better every single day. And every single day, I checked the percentage of customers who tried the product that day, what percentage of them bought the product, and it was always one freaking percent. And it got to the point where I actually became a conspiracy theorist. Because I was like, wait a minute, a 100 customers tried my product today, and one, and one of them bought, and yesterday, the exact same. I was like, with 100 people on today's cohort, on a conference call with the people from yesterday's <laughs> cohort, I go, everybody... Okay, make sure only one of you buys the product. Like, it's like, you're like, like magic. How could it be so consistent? And over six months, the product now performs a million times better. It has way fewer bugs. It's much more beautiful. It's a zillion times more usable. Mm. And 1% still buy it. Now, here's the question. Has my product actually gotten better over the course of these six months? This is the hardest thing to me as an entrepreneur. 
is you if you don't know who the customer is, you literally don't know what the word quality means. And who among us is willing to admit that? We all say we know quality when we see it. If you don't know who the customer is, and you, you don't, don't know, know what, what the, word, the word you literally quality. don't you think you made the product better, but your customer yeah, doesn't yeah. agree. That means that, that one of you is right. And the customer is always right. So you're wrong. Like you're not, it's not true that the product is better. And it doesn't mean give up on your vision. It doesn't mean you're a bad entrepreneur. It doesn't mm. mean you don't get to be the next Steve Jobs or whatever. It just means, look, the fact of the matter is something about what you're doing is not working. So let me ask. Can we admit it? The pivot or persevere meetings, this might be a quickie. Yeah. Uh, how much of the team should be in that meeting? Is that, say, most of these companies, I'd say, have between one and 15 employees. Oh, yeah. Everybody, absolutely. Everybody. So everyone's in the room. I, okay. So I, I, as a CEO, I, I, you're not disclaimer, trying to Here's a disclaimer. I am a big pro-transparency okay. leadership style. It is not – this is not a universally held value and some people think this is totally crazy. So let me yeah. be even-handed. Some people think the right way to be a founder is you act as the heat shield mm. to protect your team from the fact that your business has a high degree of uncertainty. Any of you been been in this kind of a team before where like you're like, look, engineers and regular people – they're they, the civilians. They can't handle it. <laughs> they cannot handle a live firefight. And if they only knew how much shit mm. is going down here, they would be distracted. They would never mm. be able to do their job. They right. would not be able to put their heads down and plow through it. And like, and listen, if you if you like, uh, I'm, I'm was a big agile software development, you know, zealot in, in my earlier days. And like, if you look at how those systems are designed, like, there's like an explicit understanding that like the purpose of this is to shield engineers from the bozos in upper management. So that they will not have interference in their job so they can just do their job. And, and like the original, those are all those frameworks. They were designed in a client service view where like if you're providing the software that the customer asked you to provide for them, if the customer is a moron and the software is not used by anybody and they had you build the wrong stuff, you don't care. So like it's not your problem. You did what you said you're going to do. You have a contract with them and they can't blame you for the results. But my view is that entrepreneurship isn't like that. There are, like, you're the bozo yourself. So you don't want to protect yourself from, you, you are the person, you're the problem. So, so, so there's, a, there's a trade-off and I can send around a blog post I, I, I wrote summarizing some, some of these points yeah, of view yeah. on transparency. Oh, please, yeah. if you, you have to be willing to accept the trade-off of transparency, which is potentially a morale loss. Right? So if everyone on your team actually witnessed That's all right. the craziness going on, they might lose morale. Yeah. And so and, we're okay and, with that trade-off. And, and I, yeah. I prefer that. So I've, and I've now run the, my companies this way for a while. Like there's things I like about it. First of all, it forces you to preach equanimity as a company value. So like, and so I think a lot of people don't like this because they themselves don't have their own emotions under control and they are not capable mm. of equanimity. And so mm. like the idea that's to be company value is very threatening to them. But like, I don't think those people, I think those companies like they blow up unexpectedly mm. and weirdly when people like go, you know, like you've ever been through a co-founder blow up and these companies were like, everything's going well, but the people that own the asset just were not good stewards of it. So like this is for everyone. You're all gonna, I'm gonna give you the fire hose of real information and you're, mm. you're, gonna, you're gonna ride the highs with me and go down the lows with me. And like, if that's not for you, do not work at a startup. You're in the wrong job and I gotta get you out of here now before it becomes a serious problem. And the second thing is, it actually creates opportunities for everyone else to develop founder-like qualities. You're actually developing entrepreneurial skill in your own teams. Mm. And what's interesting is founders inevitably, as their companies grow, complain. I work with a lot of founders at later stages you know, in a kind of a coaching advisory capacity. And founders are constantly complaining to me about how their teams don't exhibit entrepreneurial behavior. But I'm like, but you crippled them mm. by preventing them from ever getting to witness the actual thing their whole lives. Mm. So like now so you, you raise them as these very sheltered children and now you're upset that they can't handle the real world. What did you expect? 
So, okay. So one other thought here, then let's shift to talk about minimum yeah. viable products. Just in terms of the pivot or persevere, it's interesting to think yeah. about the role of decision-making psychology on oh, these yeah, processes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's, yeah, two, we've got to get back to that. Two quick things from that. One is, I think a couple of those who were at the founder retreat in October heard me say this in one of the sessions I led. Uh, one of our LPs, Oren Hoffman. Do you know Oren? Yeah, of course. He started LiveRamp, which is now worth over a billion dollars, a publicly traded company, longtime SaaS entrepreneur. <laughs> We'll or like to say, trust your gut in the negative, but not in the positive. Mm. So if you ever have the, uh, uh, this doesn't, I don't quite think this is going to work. The dog isn't hunting. Trust that gut. Yeah, that's right. Really um, but the gut in the positive can be very misleading. It's easy to manipulate the gut in the positive. We could talk about lots of other rules of thumb with respect to intuition and interpretation of a situation. But I thought that was interesting. And we have to pay attention to how our mind yeah. can distort our own interpretation. And in this week's New Yorker magazine, there's a great review of Stephen Johnson's new book, Farsighted, which uh-huh. I just got sent to me that I read over the weekend. Pretty good book about making decisions, long run decisions. But it's a good analysis mm-hmm. of a bunch of literature from decision science that I hadn't seen before. Oh, cool. And might be worth checking out. But I just getting a hold of how we're going to interpret the, to, to make yeah. the pivot or persevere. So, so, so let me, let me go over a couple of practice. I gave you the theoretical answer to pivot or persevere, which is totally useless. So let me give you some more practical things. The first is every single person I have ever met in all of my years in entrepreneurship, who has just been through a pivot, everyone says they wish they had done it sooner. Every single time. They always wish they had done it sooner. So the first thing is, it's actually not very difficult. Once you've made the decision to pivot, implementing the pivot is not that hard. And even knowing what to do next is generally very easy. In fact, most teams, like everyone secretly already knows that the, that the pivot is needed. And they even know what the next thing is. And it's just, but it's like taboo to speak it out loud because you don't want to puncture the morale and the, you know, like, no, you're not supposed to, t- like, you don't want to be seen as that person who doesn't believe. Because it's, it's an acknowledgement that you've wasted time and energy. Yeah, it's, it's a horrible feeling. And the longer it's been since the last pivot, the worse, the worse it gets. And the more success you've had collectively as a group, the worse it is. So the hardest part with a pivot is simply getting everyone in the same room to agree to the same set of facts about whether the strategy is currently working or not. That's the only hard part about it. If you all could agree that it wasn't working, then it would be easy to decide to pivot. And generally speaking, if you all agree that it's not working, what to do next is also usually relatively clear. So like to me, almost all of the like data-oriented techniques around lean startup, like if you're like first up to epiphany is not really obsessed with metrics and data mm-hmm. and science and so, like that's that's a later addition to to these theories. To me, the reason why those things are so important is the only reason to measure anything, actually, in a startup is so that you can have a more, like, sane, pivot or persevere conversation. Like, if it's not helping you with that conversation, you really don't need to measure it. Like, 99% of the stuff in Google Analytics is completely worthless. You're welcome to look at it because it feels good. Like, mm. the Eric's law of Google Analytics is that no matter how bad you're screwing up, there's always at least one graph that's up and to the right. <laughs> so you can, bo- you can always put that in your board deck. Go right there. And you always tell your investors, oh, we got at least something up, up, up and to the right. Oh, there's always something. So, like, if that's the way you want to make your business, God bless you. But if you actually want to know if you're on track, it's actually a relatively small number of things that are really important. And those are the things to track. And the only mm-hmm. reason to track them is so that you're going to discuss them in the meeting. So my and, view is and if you don't... whether they're leading indicators or lagging indicators. Yeah, you, gotta, it's like you obviously yeah. know that you're missing. Right? We can, we'll get into that, I'm sure. But, yeah. but, but, the, but the critical thing is if you're not having a pivot or persevere conversation, then whatever analytics you're tracking is waste. You're not going to use... You're not using it to make the only decision that really matters with the analytics. I mean, you know, obviously the optimization stuff you do is, is fine. I'm not even saying that's not important, but like the stuff that's really important is the stuff that's going to be 
in the Pivot Persevere meeting. So, awesome. so can we so talk about a structure for that is really Can valuable. we talk about MVPs? So this yeah. is another idea that, that you've been partially I'm responsible sorry, for, yeah. for spreading into the vernacular of, uh, of entrepreneurship. A question we get a lot is how viable does the minimum viable product need to be for it to be a worthy experiment? In other words, if it's, yeah, you yeah, know yeah. that if you create shit and ship shit and shit doesn't work, what did you really learn? Did you give it a shot of working? And so we often hear from founders say, oh, do I spend, you know, four months heads down before beta testing? Oh, yeah, yeah. I love this question. I get, this question. I get this question so many times um, in my life. And there's a, there's a Reed Hoffman variant of you're not embarrassed, not embarrassed by the first, by the first version. version. Yeah, you ship is, too late. And then the question correct. is, um, so, so all right, I, liable I'm, I'm, I'm on a roll here. So I'll give you the formally correct answer and then okay. I'll give you the useful answer. So formally speaking, there is a trade-off between batch. It's a batch size optimization question. You know, manufacturing theory. There's a question of like, what is the right cadence of how much work you want to do before you let work advance to the next stage? And like, there is such a thing as too, as too small batch size. And you, have, you know, as optimum theory, it has to do with the cost, the cost of the transportation cost. So how much does it cost you to do the actual shipping? Yeah, what are the consequences? In, in our case, what's the consequence of failure? So like, if you do ship something and it's not good, what what happens as a result of that? So like, if the answer was like somebody dies, like don't do that. So like, there's, there's like there's like and there's a series of factors that go into optimum batch size theory, and you want to find the right one for this. But good news, none of you have to know anything about that because my prediction, my very simple rule of thumb, is whatever you think is necessary for MVP to be viable, you are way 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 too big. Okay, so all you have to do is take whatever list you've made of things you have to do and cut it in half and cut it in half again. And I promise you, you will be nowhere near optimum batch size even then. But like, that's a perfectly good place to start. And no one believes me. Everyone's like, well, I doesn't apply to me. I know, but your friend and their startup, it sure as hell applies to them. Is anyone struggling we, with this right now? Is anyone trying to figure out how expansive their MVP should uh, be? It's brutal. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's a hard one, right? How, it's how? really, as I said, it's one of the hardest decisions to make. Yeah. But there's another piece of good news. In the specific case that you mentioned, like, I work with a lot of enterprise clients and people trying to transform their organization and, and there this is more complicated. But in the case of someone who's trying to build something new, you have a tremendous advantage in MVP discovery of or anybody else. And that is because let's say you want to spend you're like, we've got to spend four months to build these ten features in order for this thing to be viable. Well the good news is there's no product development process on the planet that produces zero features for three months, three point nine nine months. And then 10 features on the last day. If you run your product development process that way, then like, you got, you got other problems. So like, you have to build things in time because we're human beings. So there will exist at some point a version of your product that has less than all 10 features. You, you will be forced to create it on the way to creating the thing that's viable. And in most situations, not every situation, but in the vast majority of situations, there's absolutely no harm or penalty to showing that to some customers. The worst they can say is, you idiot. This is missing three of the critical features that are already on your road. And you're like, well, those are all my roadmap. This is great. That's the best feeling ever, right? Like that would be great. But most people are scared of what if. Because because they think, that, especially for enterprise, people selling enterprises, you only have one shot to make an impression. Oh, yeah. And if you make a bad impression, is that true? Like I hear that. I get, I get that advice all the time. But is it actually true? Most customers... Would depends, they, would they, yeah. it, it, it absolutely depends. It, it so depends like, on how I was, I say, is, is the identity of the enterprise buyer sort of as a, as an early adopter? They like being part of the process. That's they want right. to help you. But it, if they're not those things, you really think you're going to sell them anything? Right, you're not going to sell them anything. Like some, point. some rando startup they never heard of before to a mainstream customer is like, you're going to, you think you're going to make that sale? To hell no. So yeah. like, wouldn't it be great to find that out right now so you can stop wasting your time trying to make the sale? And in most enterprise buyers, in fact, and this is true for in consumer segments too, Customers crave being listened to 
over almost any other experience. So like, and just think about it yourself. Like, I mean, I, I, I used to tell this joke when, uh, when Steve Jobs was alive. It's like, imagine like you tried the new iPhone and it caught on fire. So literally your pants caught on fire. And it's like, whatever, like, what's the worst thing that can happen? You either like catastrophically failed in some way that was super, that's like the worst day of your life. But then the next day, Steve Jobs personally calls you and is like, I heard that your phone caught on fire and I'm really <laughs> sorry. And I want to fly you to Cupertino to advise us on the next iPhone to make sure it's even better than the one. And now like the worst thing that ever happened to you is now the greatest thing that's ever happened to your life. Like, thank God my pants caught on fire. So the only pushback I have on that, Eric, is, I, I get hit up by consumer companies all the time asking me to fill out surveys about my experience. Did you have a good time on United Airlines today? Yeah, but, yeah, yeah exactly. Do you want to fill out? I just sent flowers to a friend who passed this this test, and I got the survey from 1-800-Flowers.com. Answer these 50 questions about the two-minute transaction. So I don't really want – I don't need to yeah, be listened to. That's exactly right. But, right. So you're not an early adopter. So like – Fair. So <laughs> right. Flowers, I guess I'm not. I'm very not, mainstream in my flowers. Exactly right. Listen, early adopter is not a personality – my identity feels threatened for some reason. No, right? <laughs> in, tech, in technology, we treat early adopter like it's a kind of person. But early adopter, again, read the literature on what is an early early adopter is somebody who has either a emotional or competitive reason to want a specific mm. product for a specific purpose. So it's very context sensitive. So I am an early adopter of certain things where I'm right. like, wow, that's really awesome. But like, fl- I am not an early adopter for flower delivery, sir. Like, I'm like, I'm not an early, like, like all these like avant garde like transportation modes now, and, like mm. weirdo airplane things. And I, I'm all, I'm happy to be an investor in those things, but I am not an early adopter. <laughs> I, I don't even want to fly private. I don't want to get in a helicopter. I don't want to, I just like, I'm happy yeah. to fly United. That's completely fine with me. I'm the most mm. mainstream like mm. travel customer. Like, but for other things, you know, like I'm happy to compile the software myself and like install it on my own computer and see what happens. Like, way, no since problem. we're doing old school book recommendations, Jeffrey Morris Crossing the Chasm was also really formative for me. And uh, has so a great absolute classic. I don't know how how old is that book now? 15, 20 years? It has yeah, a, that was written in the eighties. That 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 is great great insight on the nature of well consumer adoption in general, but also the difference between early adopters. Yeah, and mainstream yeah, totally right. I was just talking to a technology reporter today. Actually, I was briefing him on something, and I was like, blah blah blah. You've read Crossing the Chasm, right? Because it is important for understanding this. And he's like, no, but I have it on my shelf from the last time you told me I was supposed <laughs> to read it. And I still haven't gotten around to reading it. And I was like, you are not qualified to cover technology if you don't read this book. So, you have to understand. Anyway, so it's sorry. funny. This conversation speaks to one of our portfolio CEOs, Yotam, <laughs> wanted me to ask you, Eric, for good examples of MVPs and B2B situations where trust is an issue. He says, a startup has a great solution for a large company but can't sell because it, it has no track record. It's too risky for the client to try. Yep. How do you MVP that when trust is the barrier, not functionality of the product or service? What I love the implicit premise of your question is that once you add a lot more features to your product, then you'll have trust with the customer. What the hell is that? Like trust, like, trust does not come from more features. I know, I know your background. It's like me as an engineer, for sure. You think trust is engendered by more features. Mm. Engineers think more features will solve any problem. Whatever it is, like you don't, you, your teeth are falling out, more features. Like that's, I, that, and I, I make it fun of engineers, but I, I'm wired that way too. I can't help it. Like, oh, if we just add more, like if we just add AI to it, then for sure, <laughs> then it's going to be, you know, it's going to be awesome. So the real question that is behind the question here is what is the mechanism to engender trust with a customer? Now, the, well, since we're talking about Crossing the Chasm, the literal definition of the chasm in Crossing the Chasm, you haven't read the book, is that in every technology that is being adopted its life cycle, there's this moment when early adopters are using the product and they like it. But mainstream customers will not use the product until they have a recommendation or referral from another mainstream customer to vouch for it. And they think the early adopters are weirdos and they won't, uh, they won't accept a referral from them. Anyone remember Google Glass? Remember when Robert Scoble was all over social media with his Google Glass pictures in the shower and the whole thing? Right? So like, 
Like certain people saw that and they're like, I got to have Google Glass right now. But the vast majority of people were like, the fact that he's so excited about it means get that thing away from me. I'm never putting that on my face. You're crazy, right? So think about those people. Now, what would it take to get them to, to try Google Glass? They need to know that it's like a cool thing to do that normal people do, right? So like not to be all like high school social dynamics about it, but a lot of products are that way. Like even an enterprise buyer, so the B2BK, like it's like, well, you know, are other Fortune 500 companies using it? And you're like, no, because every Fortune 500 company tells me they'll only use it if other Fortune 500 companies are using it. So what is wrong with you people that none of you capable of making an independent decision, you sheep? You know, and they're like, thanks for calling, like, thanks for coming in. But no, like that's not how it works. That's Our associate is, will follow up with you to talk. Yeah, to them right. We, well, yeah, right. we're very interested, and we're definitely. Please keep us posted. We don't need it. We don't need to schedule a specific follow up at this time. Though. Um, it's like the uh, the New Yorker cartoon. Uh, how about never? Does never work? For you? <laughs> never. Yeah, right. <laughs> every successful startup that ever found an early adopter, that ever had a successful MVP, found a solution to this problem. Mm. And sometimes, like, there's, like, the famous ones, you know, like, I, I remember, like, Siebel Software, I remember Siebel Software, when they started, you know, Tom Siebel just, like, had this, like, magical ability to convince consulting companies that the other consulting companies were all about to do this thing and they were going to be left behind and he got them all to buy his product when it didn't exist, you know, just through mm. the force of his incredible salesmanship. You know, there's, like, there's a lot of these famous stories. I mean, Steve Jobs is a master of this. Everyone remember the original iPhone demo that he did on stage? I mean, it's like an iconic moment, right? Right? And he had the phone. And he was like, you know, I'm going to call my friend Phil. Uh, I'm, oh, look, here he is. Tap. Oh, hey, Phil. Like, and he's just demonstrating. That. Okay. Porting finally came out. It's a couple years ago that at that demo, the iPhone did not work. It was 100% non-functional, that thing that he had on stage. It was so broken that he had in the lectern-like thing – they had placed several other ones. He had like several prototypes sitting there because like the thing crashed so often. He, the idea was that he would do a hot swap while no one was looking. Steve was that good at demos that he was confident that that was going to work. And he made his engineers develop what they called the golden path for this demo. Literally every tap on the screen was scripted down to the specific pixel it was safe for him to tap on to make it seem – like that was like the one that was least likely to crash. So when he's like, oh, I think every action of his finger is scripted down to the specific button he's allowed to push and not push. And like he was really good at making it seem real. Everyone thought it was real and everyone's like lining up to pre-order a thing. They had never even manufactured one, let alone knew how to manufacture the millions they were going to need six months later. So that's their attempt to optimize. Like how good does it have to be before you demo it? It doesn't have to be perfect. It has to be good enough. Enough to engender trust. Now, right. people like... Steve was trading on his reputation for having done this before. So like, yeah. you know, he knew that he could make it, he could make it work. But I guarantee you, if nobody was lined up to pre-order the iPhone, they would have made a change, mm -hmm. right? Like, like they gave themselves this opportunity to make adjustments if it was needed. So let's talk about a central criticism of this framework. I thought it'd be fun to challenge a bit. So the central criticism you hear of, of lean startup and MVPs and pivots is that process overtakes an inspired vision. Yeah. And there is a Twitter thread featuring some of the most compassionate and warm loving people in Silicon Valley, Keith Boy and others <laughs> critiquing yeah, Lean Startup. Right. And James Hong, who's actually a nice guy, started Hot or Not like 25 years yeah. ago, yeah. Um, wrote on Twitter, it's only a few months ago, he said, overuse of MVP and over-reliance and A-B testing often leads companies to believe they've reached absolute maxima when in fact they're trapped at a local yeah. maxima. Yeah. Basically, it is potentially a mediocrity trap. The problem is when you start with shit, no amount of A-B testing will make it smell good. Probably better, in my humble opinion, to start with a vision 
and use these techniques to help refine it. But starting point matters. It might not, that matters more than MVP. How would you respond to that? I mean, so first of all, the, the point about starting with shit and A-B testing, that is not literally true. Okay, so first of all, like, A-B testing is very powerful, and the reason people are addicted to it is because there are situations where people have, in fact, started with something quite crappy, and they have A-B tested themselves, their way out of it. So, like, that's not correct. But that's not the framework. Like, but, like, the fact that that's true has nothing to do with me. I have never advocated for starting with shit and A-B testing your way out of it. And I addressed this misconception. Like, the last time I someone sent me one of these things, I had to go back. I was like, I literally was like, am, am I crazy? Did I not address this in the book? Because, like, I started to be like, I guess I didn't. I guess people, like, I guess I got to do a new revised edition. It's on page nine of the introduction. It was like, a word of caution. Make sure that you start. And he said it. I articulated it very well. Start with the vision. The initial mm. conditions matter. You mm. cannot, like, you don't want to get stuck in a local maximum. I was obsessed with that problem in writing the lean startup because I was really worried about it because, like, I used to get that criticism. Like, when I, I was the one who introduced A-B testing into my, the startup that I was, wrote a lot about in the startup called InView. And just so you get, like, this is not like ancient history. This is 2004 we started that company. In 2004, I was like, we should A-B test things on our website. And the other engineers and people that I worked with were like, why? That's like a direct marketing technique. What does that have to do with product? And I was like, because science, right, guys? And they were like, I mean, they were like, looked at me so weird. And so like, like, they were like, no, we're not doing that. So in order to do A-B testing in those days, you didn't just go to Optimizely and grab your JavaScript thing and just slap it on there. I had to write my own A-B testing library from scratch because there weren't any because it was considered a weirdo thing for direct marketing people to do, not a product. So like the world is very different now. But, mm. but even back then, even in the early, the very first thing any engineer ever said to me after I introduced the mm. A-B testing library to our code base was like, what about the local maximum problem? And like, aren't we just going <laughs> to A-B test our way into a local maximum? I was like, we should be so lucky to be in any kind of maximum. <laughs> yeah, that is a problem. I completely agree. But like, look where we are. Our, our conversion rate has been 1% for how long now? Like, would you yeah. like to see it be at 2% and then we can worry about a billion? So like, so, so I guess yeah. The, I, mean, I like, guess one of the questions I would, I would contemplate on though is what's, what's harder? Having the inspired vision. Oh, it's having the inspired mastering. vision, totally. But like, what are you going to do about that? Like, everyone thinks they have an inspired. The problem with all this advice about vision is everyone thinks they're Steve Jobs. And listen, and if you are, if Steve Jobs really worked the way the mythical Steve Jobs actually work, and if you're him, go nuts. What do you need me for? You don't need my permission. You have a brilliant vision. Like, go make it happen. Just through the force of your mind, you can make, change reality to do. Totally great. That's that's amazing. But like. If you have Steve even Jobs the, plus the secret. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, like, that, like that's I, a lot of this advice. It's not – so here's the thing that's really, really like, – this is why it's very frustrating to be a VC as I understand it. You can tell me if it's wrong. A lot of that advice is correct. Like those people are repeating a pattern that they have seen work repeatedly. But the fact that they have seen that pattern work repeatedly does not mean that that advice is helpful, right? And from a VC's point of view, they don't care. Like whether it helps you or not is irrelevant. They want more people who meet the pattern. To show up in their office and pitch them a company, and Who's so thought back here. So I'm jumping. I was going to say, like, I think a great maybe, uh, maybe comment on this. A great example that comes to mind is Zynga. Yeah. And essentially, they started with a vision to make play games that people love, but essentially, it was taking a game that works somewhere or like a basic concept, copying it because there's no IP issues and copying something. And yeah. Then add it. And then maybe that's then putting all the viral loops and all that, but ultimately they failed to make that a priori leap to actually make games that are fun. No, listen, I, I, I think that's a really important question, like a really important comment because it's really important for us as entrepreneurs to get serious about what a success means. Cause I, a lot of people would be like, uh, 
Zynga is still a public company. It's a multi-billion-dollar company. <laughs> yeah, like Mark Pickus is starting a whatever zillion trillion-dollar PE fund or something, whatever, because it, or he's going to help other entrepreneurs who've made that mistake avoid making that mistake again, because he because he really knows because he made that mistake. But like because he's got billions of dollars because he did this terrible thing and it worked. So like, are we comfortable with that? And we're all having to grapple that as an industry because of the behemoth of Facebook, who like took this to a place that is really dark. We all have to be grappling with that because I don't think it's a I don't think it's a resolved question. And people have really opened. I think it's a thing of very active debate of people who like they still want to follow in Mark Zuckerberg's footsteps, and the people who are worried about it. Hmm. And so we as an industry have to get clear about this. First of all, if you sell out the like, like this is so this is like this is like like the local maximum turned out to be a multi billion dollar local maximum. Are you really is that really a problem for you? And I think some people really have the ethics to say like, yeah, it is a problem. I came. I'm here for the vision. And I want to do this specific thing and I'm not willing to sell out, man. But there's a lot of other people who are like, I'll take it. I'll take the billion. Like, yeah, well, I'll, I'll worry about that in my next company after I invest my billions of dollars in riches. So like we have to grapple with that as entrepreneurs. And you have to ask yourself, like, to me, what does it mean to have a vision? What is, what's in the vision? You can always ret- – like you can retcon a vision out of anything. So like a lot of the most grandiose visionary statements coming out of entrepreneurs, all you have to do is go read what they wrote. Or now you can see video. Like you can you go watch the video interviews of Mark Zuckerberg. You ever seen that famous one when he's in the dorm at Stanford? Like at the very early days of Facebook and someone asked him what's the vision for Facebook? And it's like, well, just watch it for yourself. It's really interesting. Very, it's very small scale, right? It's like yeah. it's not to connect the world and right. all the stuff they talk about now. And like so here's my question. Like was Mark Zuckerberg not a visionary back then? Or was he incoherent about his vision? Was he being deliberately secretive and withholding it? But like, if that's true, how come the Google founders, if you read the About Us page in the Wayback Machine of Google from version one, you're like, that think they're doing what? PayPal, you read the original press releases about how PayPal is going to take over the world through their superior cryptography solution for Palm Pilots. Like those guys, they weren't visionaries? So do you think, cause you like, raise, it's a really provocative question, yeah. like what can you do about it? So some would argue, work on, on the vision and making it as ambitious and as inspired as you possibly yes, can. Yes, absolutely. I and completely then, agree with that. But, but, but then you had, your response was, yeah, but what can you do about it? I guess the question is, is there anything practical you can do to... Well, I'll tell you one thing that was really, really helpful is you can run some experiments to actually know what the hell you're talking about. Mm. Because like the really great entrepreneurs, what I think is really amazing is that the, the vision that they build is refactored out of real knowledge. It's actually really like uh, you sit at your armchair and be like, oh, I'm going to think big, great visionary thoughts. But the problem is, and I, I feel like there's some people who have written about this, the ideas that sound big are not generally the ones that are big. Hmm. Like there's something like there's something very deceptive when you're like, I have an idea, like let's cure cancer. That sounds like a really good and big idea. But you're like, oh, actually, that's not that's not a good idea. Like, no, like the, the actual cure for cancer is going to come out of a seemingly small breakthrough by someone who is determined to cure cancer through this very unusual mm. plan they have for how to do it. Or yeah. like, let's fix, I mean, I get pitched all the time, let's fix education, let's fix this, let's fix that. Like, that's, like, I, I feel like that doesn't really count. It's mm. like the really, truly great visionaries, like they know something about how the world actually operates. They see something that people uh, don't see, right? They have a differentiated insight. Curious. And, and like, how do you develop that? Yeah, Jeff, will call on you. I was wondering if I could put Elliot on the spot just because we had, we had a conversation a few months ago and it was, there was literally a conversation where it was like, Idea A and idea B. And idea A is a bigger vision than idea B, but has different trade-offs inherent in that. How do you, how do you sort of react to this discussion on, on, on vision? 
So there's a couple points that I, I'd love to make. One is, um, I think Andrew Blackliffe used to say this from Benchmark. Uh, you know, I normally don't like to quote him, but he's right in this case. <laughs> Which is like, you can't just say, I'm going to start a company, right? Or Absolutely. It kind of finds you. Mm. Right? So this is the idea that the vision is not arbitrary. It's based on your experience. It's based on inputs mm. from your life. Yeah. Right? Uh, and so I think that's a powerful way of having a people be very concrete uh, uh, you know some other folks um, um, call it being kind of authentic having a start that's authentic mm. uh, or being called to do something yeah. as it were yeah, yeah. Pro- I think they call problem founder fit for people who want, yeah. want to have slash yeah. new that's terms right. invented for everything jargon <laughs> it's, it's Andy's fault because he's the person who popularized product market fit more than anybody else yes I know that he, he tells me he teaches a class on it yeah uh, uh, so, uh, so I like that, but I think you know the conversation that we had. It's possible to have multiple, yeah, right, and, and sort of you go through a little bit of an experimental process, yeah, uh, as you were describing, Eric. So, a funny thing happened. We had those two ideas, and everyone I met, mm. like our discussion, mm. I gave them the two ideas, mm. right, and the the reaction was immediate, right? That one idea was. Mm more interesting mm. like you know I think Jerry was I was there for a lot I think nearly a hundred percent of the time mm. right someone would say oh they're both real problems but you should do this one mm. <laughs> right so I think it's a great example yeah I mean this I guess I'm in San Francisco so it's okay to say this but when I travel I, I get really strange looks at this one but I really think entrepreneurship is a process of self-discovery the truth that you don't know what your vision is till you put it to the test it's not that you don't have a vision until you put it. You don't really know what it is because you don't really know what's important to you until you have to start making trade-offs. That's why I started the discussion mm. with the fantasy, right? right? So I think that two two people working on the exact same company, encountering the exact same evidence, and deciding to make a pivot probably would choose two different pivots if they had different values. Right? Mm. You, you discover something about what you really care about. Like I remember one time, uh, one of the companies I worked with, they. We had gotten the customer segment wrong. We had the right value prop, but for the wrong customer segment. So, like our choice, like at that point, like in our in our fantasy, the value prop worked for every customer segment. But like we had, so we got to pick an early adopter segment. We're gonna make it work for this group, and then a different group was using our product. And I remember we used to get really irritated, like these oh, these other like getting out of the way of our target customer. Get these people off my product. Get them out. We couldn't get them. We couldn't beat them away with a stick. I'm like, get, get out of my way. I'm trying to get to my target customer. Uh, and and eventually, someone's like, you know, uh, if you have these people want to use your product and these other people don't, maybe. But we we're like, but no. But there were a lot of reasons why we're like, but hold on, this segment's not as good. The economics don't work. The this thing in the business plan. We need these other people for this other reason. Like we don't want this like, these losers over here. And so then it was like, okay, now we have a choice. We clearly know that this value proposition works for this customer segment. Mm. So should we double down on this customer segment because that's mm. where the traction is? Or should we change the value proposition to find something that works for that customer segment? And it was a really hard – it sounds so mm. dumb now, but it was actually a really hard decision. Which you covered in your every six-week pivot or perseverance. Uh, we discussed we – <laughs> I wish we'd had, had it every six weeks. That would have been really good in that case. You know, people know the famous story of Starbucks and their founding. I love this one. I won't go through the whole story, but like – the original Starbucks was was a was this Italian inspired cafe called Il Giornale, and it had like Italian opera and the waiters in the Italian suits and um, Italian newspapers and whatever. You couldn't get your coffee to go in a paper cup because the vision, the true vision for coffee, was in a porcelain cup. 
And customers would show up and be like, but this is America. So <laughs> I want my coffee to go. And then customers would show up and be like, can you shut off the Italian, right? Like eventually it pivoted over time. And in a long story short, they eventually uh, acquired the rights to the Starbucks name and Lowe's Howard worked at Starbucks before. But they didn't do coffee. They only did coffee machines. Anyway, it's a long story. So, so he gets this moment where he's finally acquired the rights to the logo and the brand, the name of Starbucks. And they have a company meeting to decide, should we go forward to the new pivot to the new Versions company. Should we go forward under the brand name Starbucks or the brand name Il Giornale? <laughs> and the fact that they had to have a meeting about it, it's just so awesome. I love, it's one of my favorites are just extra. like, it's like, cause like, I mean, of, of, like in retrospect, it's like, of, uh, it's so obvious now what they should have done. But you, I mean, I don't, I don't know how at all, like personally, but like, yeah, you know, they broke his heart a little bit. To let go this like pristine vision, I like, discovered. All right, what I do want to have is like quality coffee in every freaking block of America. So you all know the term vanity metrics. That's another lean startupism. Vanity metrics are the whatever you put in your press release to make your competitors want to kill themselves. Like that's what it's for. That's what they're for. They're really good at that. I used to have a competitor that I that I put out these press releases constantly that talked about the gross national product equivalent of all the user to user transactions on their platform, and they'd be like, "Our GMP is now bigger than Sweden or whatever." And it was like such a ridiculous metric. It was like, that doesn't make any sense. I was like, why don't you just report your revenue? Okay. Why don't you tell us, like, does anyone buy, does anyone pay for your product at all? Like, whatever. And like, you know, people are like, we have four billion messages been sent on my platform. It's like, well, does that mean that four billion pro- people tried your product one time and hated it? Or is one person far too enthusiastic about your product <laughs> or anything in between? I, I, and like, and, and how much money you raised is a total vanity metric. And I remember I had an investor who would be like, every time there'd be a press, anything in TechCrunch in our industry, he'd be like, Hey, well, what about this? How's our GMP doing? And I would be like, excuse me, let me explain why that doesn't make sense and it's a bad metric and da 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 da. And he'd be like, yeah, no, totally hear that. Yeah, that's a good point. But, but just out of curiosity, what is it? Because <laughs> he wants to, is our, is our thing bigger than their thing, right? Like, are we doing good or bad? And like, every business I've been in, there are m- multiple funded competitors that just come and go. I had a question for you about your interview in Jason Calcanis, 2000. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah in 2015, you told Jason, winter is coming, startups. Winter is coming. The good times are not going to last. It's January 2019. I stand by that statement. I didn't say when it was coming. Uh, that's right. You know, you guys all know Game of Thrones, right? So, like, summer's children are the people that all in Game of Thrones, right? Summer with seasons only turn, like, over multiple years, and you don't know how many years it's going to be. So they have a phrase, summer's children, people who only grew up during the summer season have never seen winter. So look around, my friends. So, a, lot, so, a lot of those people around right now. So, but look, so but 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 never but, been easier to raise money. I think, and I think this question from Brian is really powerful, which is when it's so easy to raise money, you can raise yeah, a lot yeah, of money. exactly right. How does that screw with? So okay, there's a couple pieces to your question though. So I had forgotten actually until you asked this question that in the early days of lean startup, we used to be accused of being anti VC because there are all these VCs that felt like we were preaching don't raise money because like lean startup became famous in the aftermath of the financial crisis in 2008 2009 it was very convenient by the way to be the the lean startup guy running on silicon valley people used to call me up for advice and they'd be like how can you i heard you can help me save money on my office furniture <laughs> can you get me out of this ridiculous lease that we signed in 2007 and i'd be like no that's not really my thing let me explain the build measure learn feedback loop allows you to evaluate which activities are actually helping you get the validated learning that you need and i was like and anything anything that does not help you get through that loop faster is spending that you can cut you don't really need a crisis for that at any time. It's just pure waste. You get rid of it. people are like that. Yeah, thanks for that really helpful advice, my friend. But what about my my you know my office lease? Can you get me out of it? And it's like, you know that like I forgot. It's just like it's been such a long time since people had that criticism that I've kind of forgotten about it. But now I guess now there's like a new resurgence of people saying, well, now that we're in a capital rich environment, why do you need to be efficient with your money? 
And like, I, I've never really understood this. It doesn't really make sense to me. It's like whether you have a dollar of $10 or a million dollars or a hundred million dollars or you have all SoftBank's money, shouldn't you spend it well? Because like maybe the money will run out one day. So like, it's not like I, you should not, I, I called market top then and I was wrong. So please don't take market advice from me. What the hell do I know? I'm not, I'm not a financial forecaster by at all. All I can say is like, I learned this kind of bad lesson in my time in the valley watching the dot com bubble crash and then the financial crisis. Like, you see these signs of exuberance and ridiculousness. You're like, well, I guess that means it's going to crash. The correction is coming. But like, there's no, there's no guarantee. It can just go on in debt. As long as people are willing to underwrite the ridiculousness, it can go on. So you, but do you think it's in general, is it harder to practice this methodology? Psychologically, it is hard. It absolutely is harder. Like, I think like, that's pretty obvious. I mean, I think if you have, Ten million dollars in the bank versus a million dollars in the bank. Well, like ten million in the bank is going to be less. Just remember how much money Jeff Bezos. Well, first of all, Jeff Bezos took Amazon.com public three years after founding it. Okay, he raised in his IPO what like I want to say like a hundred million dollars, one hundred sixty million dollars, something like that. Like no, basically nothing, rounding down to zero by our standards. And he was a public company through the whole dot com bubble. And it just so happens that right before the bottom fell out, he did some monster equity raise. That meant that his coffers were completely flush through the entire dot-com bubble collapse, and he was able to survive. And the reason he is what he is today, the reason Amazon has all this independence and they can tell analysts to go shove it and they have, they can run for it, like, it's only because when the shit hits the fan, he had just raised, he had raised so much money and he hadn't spent it yet. Only because the t- it wasn't, hadn't been any time to spend it because he just raised it and then everything went, and went to hell. So like, I don't know, I'm, I'm paranoid. I'm, I'm always convinced. That the, that the bottom is going to fall out on me. Cause that happened in my first startup. I, I was killed by the dot com crash in my tiny little way. I'm a, a tiny little startup, but like I was scarred by that experience. I'm always expecting the worst to happen. And so my view is always like spend the money efficiently, but being too conservative with your spending when you could be investing it and getting to the build, measure, learn loop faster, build, measure, learn loop faster is also wasteful. So I, I'm for spending money at the optimum rate. As your, as the theory allows, which is an answer that pisses off everybody. Nobody likes that answer. They're like, optimum rate. Just tell me if it, right? Like, you make a market prediction. Like, I should just, I should shut up about market prediction. I don't know if this is going to keep going, but I would say if you're raising money during good times, you raise absolutely as much as you can and spend as little of it as you need to get through the loop. And then we can, like, we can be more formal about it. Like, if you, if you really buy into the theory, if you buy into engines of growth, you realize that, that you should only raise and spend venture capital when you can remove fixed cost impediments to the the engine of growth turning as quickly as it naturally can. So think about like Facebook has this incredible viral thing going, but it's not generating enough revenue to buy the servers to be able to expand at the natural rate that Facebook should expand. Like that's a classically great use of venture capital. You raise the money to remove the fixed cost requirement of the servers. But if you'd spent additional money to just like juice the numbers by buying eyeballs like we used to do in the uh, in the dot-com bubble, that would be pure waste. That's a terrible, terrible idea. Let's go to one last question. Yeah, yeah Fred from Brightside. Um, when we talk about scientific experiments, obviously we sort of think of controlled environments and we're trying to look at one variable, but obviously we know it's faster than yeah. once. We're looking at different keywords, different targeting, and different funnels, and different drip campaigns. Yeah. Um, and so we think of it more like a Rubik's Cube, but every time you turn it, it's affecting everything else as well. So how do you think about balancing that experimentation, that ability to actually draw conclusions from your tests with your ability to move fast and have lots of tests going at once. It just sucks, man. I mean, right? Like, it sucks to be us. That, like, yeah, it's just really freaking hard. There's nothing, I have nothing intelligent to say here other than have your pivot or persevere meeting on a regular clip and, like, just 
zoom out and look at the gestalt of what's going on and be like, just in aggregate, and this is the only question to ask, in aggregate, are we getting closer? Is our strategy taking us closer to our vision sufficiently fast? And that's it's sufficiently fast. That's the problem, right? Because I, I meet teams all the time where they're like, you know, the, they have some critical conversion rate that needs to be 10% for the business to work. And they did the first experiment. It was 5%. So like halfway there. And then it, like they did a bunch of experiments and it's a quarter later. And it's 5.5%. And that's like 5.7%. And that's 5.75%. And that's like 5.757%. And then it's like 5.7, you know, 5.757777. And I swear to God, those teams will be like, but it's up and to the right. It's still growing. So shouldn't we continue? And you'll be like, you ever seen an asymptotic curve? You are on it, my friends, right? So like, you got to be willing to be like, is that acceptable? And and I guess we tried all this stuff, and yes, and there's all and there's always excuses, right? If the numbers are down, it's always because of seasonality. Why is that? How come seasonality never makes the numbers go up? Can anyone explain that to me? It's like magic, right? If we if the numbers went up, it's because of what we did. But if we went down because of seasonality, but you're like, okay, yeah, but cutting all the crap, no investors in the room, just like between us, we've been at this for six months. Are we anywhere? And that was the, the point you made about negative gut. I have had that feeling a few times in my life. I never want to have it again of just being like, it ain't there. It's just not there. Like, well, uh, it seemed like it was going to work, but it just didn't. And it's like, do you really have the courage to say it out loud? And be like, guys, on that I think uplifting we're there. note. Yeah. So in, in summary, everything sucks. You're going to feel terrible and you're all going to die. And if you follow me, you too can be a big failure. Who's with me? Yeah, sorry. So, I Eric, feel like we're, uh, we're honored to have you as a fellow villager. Oh, as an yes. investor. And uh, let's put our hands together. Thank you, Eric. Thank you. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 